Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. 11 which became the home for Usher, Tony Braxton, TLC, Pink, and Outkast. From Indianapolis, Indiana, this philanthropist passionately helps those who struggle with diabetes as well as those who are fighting Alzheimer's. And the writer is the newly inducted Songwriter Hall of Famer, Kenny Babyface Edmonds. So uh, so how do you get started in, in music? I mean, are your parents musicians or i know you were um, in a band with your brothers yeah my um my mom she sang in the choir um a little bit and my dad he he kind of just sung around the house a little bit he, he'd record himself on a um, little tape recorder he had back then way back then and uh but other than that he wasn't a professional singer or anything but he had a pretty cool voice he was a really good whistler and uh um we used to just kind of sit around and watch him sing um, into the into his little microphone, you know. Was Nat, he making Nat, up things? Was he? No, he sung like Nat King Cole songs. Oh, sick. And, and uh, Jelly Roll and um, a couple things like that. And but other than that, it was um, um, j- just music in the house. You know, just listen to the radio. And uh, you played a lot of instruments. Were they introducing you to a lot of? I I, I picked up guitar when I was in sixth grade. Um, cause my brother had brought a guitar inside the house, acoustic guitar. It wasn't his. He was borrowing it from a guy. He was in a band called the Soul Innovations. And he brought back, um, this guitar in the house and told nobody not to touch it. Of course I touched it. <laughs> um, and, um, so he used to play this little, little lick, um, uh, little riff. And I watched him play it. And my problem was I'm left-handed and it was a right-handed guitar. 
And so he was right-handed, so I'd watch him play, so I had to watch it upside down. So I started teaching myself how to play, but upside down because, you know, because I wasn't supposed to be playing it. So, um, And uh, one day he walked in the house and caught me playing it, and he said to me, he said, you'll never be able to play it like I can play it. And I thought it was mean, but I thought and it just occurred to me now, maybe he said that because... I'm left-handed, so he might not have been being mean at the time. So, um, but actually, when he said that, it kind of just inspired me to like really work harder and try to be better than him. So, um, when when did you start writing? Like, well, you, that's actually, when you were fiddling around with the guitar. Well, that's actually you... why I picked up the guitar um, because I was in sixth grade, and this girl named Rhonda Newbold had just moved into the neighborhood, and uh, I fell in love with her first sight and. I wanted to write a song for her. And so I, I, that little lick that I learned from my brother Melvin, I turned that into a song. Do you remember what it was called? Oh, Here I Go Falling in Love. Did you sing it to her? No way. Really? Of course not. Can you sing it still? Yeah, I, I play it in my show sometimes. Really? Yeah, if I'm, if I'm just have the acoustic guitar, I'll, like, I'll go through all these songs I wrote in like sixth grade and eighth grade because I was always falling in love and getting my heart broke, so I had a whole, had a whole bunch of songs. Where does that come from? It's just because you had a, a <clears throat> loving family and so sort of, or like where does that come from? The Maybe love? I, that's presumptuous. I, I started know. falling in love in kindergarten, so no, I don't know. If, Who is that? <laughs> that was um, Debbie Mormon. Nice. In kindergarten. Uh, first grade was Hope Hopkins. Uh, second grade, second, third, and fourth, nobody was cute those years. <laughs> uh, fifth grade had a, a crush on a fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Potter, and then sixth grade came around the new boat, and that kind of changed the game. I kind of had a crush on around the new boat all the way through eighth grade. Uh, when it, when you start playing music at that age, are your friends and family like encouraging you, saying, "Hey, you should keep." Like keep playing. Are, are the girls in, in in junior high? Are they like, or well, are they are they too young at that point to know how cool it is that? Well, <laughs> it was cool. It, it it gave me a voice. Put it that way, because I, I was a very shy kid and very and so so. But then it was a musical house in the sense that because my brother Melvin he was in a group and as I said he had this group called the Soul Innovations and so that same year when I was in sixth grade, um, he was doing a mixer at the high school that I ultimately went to. And the Jackson 5 were out at that point, and so he didn't have anybody sing Michael's part for Who's Loving You. So he auditioned my brother and myself, and um, and I won. And what did so you... He auditioned I, you and me, your brother? Me and my brother, Kevin. <laughs> and uh, I sang, ended up singing Who's Loving You um, at the mixer. And um, so music was a part definitely a part of something and Melvin was in this group the innovations and he wasn't so much writing songs that much he I remember there's one song he wrote that I still remember but um he wasn't so much of a songwriter I I once I got on the guitar that's kind of like all I did was I wasn't really so much trying to learn songs on the radio I was trying to learn how to write songs sure my own songs um what's the story about you disguising yourself to meet Jackson 5 Somebody told me to ask you yeah. that. So. Well, um, that was in eighth grade. That was a um, that eighth grade year. That was a crazy year because nineteen seventy two. So much happened. It's hard to believe so much happened in that year. 
Um, but like at the beginning of the year, uh, my father passed away, uh, January second. And um, but it was also that probably that that was also the same year that I had my first kiss with Rhonda Newboat and my first diss. She kissed me and dissed me at the same time. And uh, damn it, Rhonda. Yeah, but another great song came out of that one. Yeah. Um, and um, but then the Jackson Five thing happened because when I was in sixth grade, I saw them. Uh, went to a concert and saw them uh, doing the Going Back to Indiana concert, and I was blown away, and I took promise myself I'll meet them one day. And so when eighth the eighth grade year came, um, that somewhere in February, February, March, they were coming in, and I saw this, saw it in the newspaper, and so I decided, um, I looked in the newspaper and, and looked at who the promoter was, and the promoter's name was Charles Williams. So I called up every name in the phone book looking for Charles Williams, asking, is this the promoter for the the show, for the Jackson 5 show? He said, yes. Then I hung up, and I waited a day. And I called back the next day, and I called as a, a, a journalist, a teacher, uh, Mr. Clayton, and That's I, who you said you were. Yeah, in I eighth used, grade. Yes, I so had, your voice doesn't sound like you're. A no, but I had a, had a I had a really good Jimmy Stewart impersonation. Can you do it still? Uh, 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 hi, this is Mr. Clayton. I'd love to talk to. Uh, I was wondering if I could uh, speak to. Uh, is this Charles Williams? Uh, I heard that you got these guys, uh, the Jackson boys. So I went through the whole thing, and uh, and so I did that as. Uh, eighth grader and I, I I used his voice I said my name is Mr. Clayton I'm Westlane I'm a teacher journalist teacher at Westlane Junior High School and I thought this would be great if I could have kids interview kids and Charles goes I think that's a great idea he said so how do I get in contact with you Mr. Clayton I said here's what I'd like you to do one of the kids one of the students his name's Kenny Edmonds great student I'm going to give you his phone number and I'm going to let him set it up like a real journalist. So you can call him and he'll set the whole thing up. He said, great. So he called me 10 minutes later and I answered the phone. Like, Were oh, you my so God. nervous? Of course. Because my mom was at the house and she had seen me doing that and she would have killed me. So, um, But it all worked out. He called and <clears throat> and I, I acted surprised that Mr. Clayton had set this up. And um, he told me, I'll let you know in a couple of weeks whether we can do it. And then he called me a couple of weeks that you got the interview. And so I was able to go interview the Jackson Five. Um, did you tell? I mean, you have you had some relationship with Michael Jackson as like a. Of course, I told you know, him. Yeah. So like this had to be something that you guys talked about I def- many I, times. I, I, your- I told him and his um, um, and, and his brothers Jermaine and everybody because I have a, actually there's a picture out there because I did it twice in this the second meeting I have a picture out there in the hallway. Um, but yeah, I, I met him a couple times. Of course, they don't remember. Of course, yeah. I mean, you know? they meet. Yeah, um, that's amazing. So, take me from basically that to you know becoming an artist, because I assume that's first. I mean, actually, I know that's first. You know, that? before you get into really like writing for other people and stuff internally, you're writing about all these. You know, the girls that you have these crushes on. So, yeah. when is the moment that you start performing for people and saying, you know what? I'm not just a kid who's trying to like write songs at home, but I want other people to sing along to these. Well, 
that was kind of all the t- like once in sixth grade I, I sang with my brother in Soul Innovations. Then, um, did that ever? Did Soul Innovations ever have a record deal, even a no. local one or anything like that? They did not. Then I joined another group called the Indy Five, which is like the Jackson Five, and I never really did get to sing live with them. That never did work out. And then that was in seventh grade, and then in eighth grade, then I started my own group which was initially Gemini 8. Um, there was a couple friends, um, Kenny Adams, Malcolm Gregory, Keithy Adams, Kenny Hamilton, Lloyd Crow. Um, and so we had a, had a little group, and um, initially it was called Gemini 8, and for some reason we changed the name to LC Soul Unlimited. I think because we started to re- rehearsing over at um, Lloyd Crow's house. And he was the drummer, and so... Elsie. Yeah, so Elsie Soul Unlimited. And then we got this, a chance to perform live on this local TV show, Kenny, Kenny Hamilton's, Kenny Hannington, his son, uh, not his, his dad had a connection down at this TV show called Clover Power, which was a local kind of show where they, they show pigs and stuff and... <laughs> Uh, and crazy stuff, but interesting enough, the host of the show was none other than David Letterman. Sick. And uh, so we actually performed on and and, and sang the Love You Save uh, on that show when we were in when I was in eighth grade. Um, and uh, it was it was with the band called Elsie um, Soul Unlimited, and we were kind of famous in my, on my street because when it came on that Saturday morning, you know. I was famous for a little bit. Um, so, but that being being said, um, even then, I was writing the songs, but we weren't performing them yet for with the group. It wasn't until... Why? Did you not want to present it to them? Or? I, th- that wasn't something that they were that we were thinking. We think yeah. we were supposed to be playing, you know, Jackson Covers 5 songs. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then... Um, I got, when I got to ninth grade, I was still writing songs and uh, and when I started writing more, I I had, uh, had my chance with Rhonda Newbold. I finally, you know, got to see her and and spent the last day of school with her and, and I had a two week, two week relationship with her. Um, and it ended in a kiss and a diss. Which was the kiss was my first kiss. I didn't know I wouldn't expect it. She said, "Kiss me," and I said, "Okay." And I kissed her. Then right after the kiss, then she said, "We're not gonna be able to see each other anymore." And um, long story, <coughs> it was bad. Cruel. And so I, I I left, walked down the street, had tears in my eyes, went straight to my guitar and and picked up my guitar and I walked for days. It feels like probably long as Forrest Gump walked. And, um, <laughs> and I I wrote this song called "The Bitter Taste of Life." And um, and at that point, I just kept on writing songs. Um, and then the next year, when ninth grade came, met this other girl named Tanita. I wrote Tanita, and then I wrote um, Too Shy. And um, so what happened was at the end of my eighth grade year, there was this guy named Emmanuel Officer that came over to my mom's house looking for me. And he uh, he asked my mom. He said, "Is this is the house?" Is this the house where the kid that sounds like Michael Jackson lives? Because 
it had become, you know, it was urban legend now that I sang at this thing in sixth grade. I sounded just like Michael Jackson, only better. And um, and so she said, well, he did sing a Jackson 5 song once. I said, okay, well, we're, we're start, trying to start a group and I'd love to, you know, we, we want to meet him. We got to meet him. And um, so my mom told me about these guys. They were kind of awkward looking kids that came over and looking for me and then they left the phone number so I called the phone number and and they asked me if I would come over to audition so I went over there to audition I took my little guitar that I had it was actually a friend's guitar and it was missing a string the sixth string um so I was for the longest time I was playing with five string guitar because I had no money to get another string so I went over there to the house and uh they asked me to sing and they asked me to sing Michael Jackson song, well, and sing with the record. Well, my voice had changed. I hadn't, I couldn't hit Michael notes anymore. So I w- went for it, and then they were all like, "This is not the guy. This is not the guy." And then um, I said, "Well, I got something else." And then they said, "What?" So I said, "I got a couple songs I wrote." So I started uh, to perform the song I wrote called "Too Shy." And as I was doing that, then the father of the kids that lived in the house, he came down the stairs and he goes, who's that? He goes, uh, did you write that? And I said, yeah. He said, and he goes, well, he's too good to be with y'all. y'all just... And so then they hired me in the group at that point. And that was the Elements. And in that group, um, we wrote a lot of our songs yeah. and tried to perform them all the time. We We might play little house parties. Um, we played at the the Westland Junior High School, the talent shows. We, you know, it was um, it, it was something that we w- we would do. So it was it was part of who we were, and and um, so people at school at my junior high school kind of started to know I was a musician, and it kind of gave me a voice. And I was I actually was put in charge of the talent show. And all the kids would come, all the pretty girls and everybody would come into my house and I was in charge. And um, and so this kid who was really shy suddenly could talk to all the pretty girls. And and I was popular, but I was not the one. I was, I didn't know what to do with it. So um, it didn't, it didn't matter. Um, but it was, it, it, like I said, it gave me a voice. It, it, it was it, empowering. It, it showed me. You know, I, I became a person. I wasn't invisible. Because right. otherwise, I, I totally would have been invisible. Um, so music was, you know, the writing and the music was very much a part of my whole essence. Do you still feel that way when you write, that part of the goal of writing is so that you're not invisible? No. Even, even after all, like, the huge success and all that stuff, like, when you still go into a room, you still go into a room and write, you know, you can't have someone else write your part. Like, you do what you do. Like, why do you write now? Is it at all the same motivation? It's a good question. I don't, I'm not necessarily trying to be visible at this point. I don't, I think for a good part of my career, I wasn't necessarily trying to be visible. I was, as a celebrity or as a star or whatever like that, I've never always been kind of on the backside of that, you know. Yeah. But, um, no, I write because it's, it's what I love to do. It's, it's, um, it's great to write a great song and sure. and have other people perform it or me perform it myself. It's, you know, what better job can you have? Sure. When did you start getting really sort of recognized as 
a writer and an artist, at least from your perspective? Like, is it when you get a record deal for you? Was it when you had your first, like, cut? Was it when you had your first single? I mean, those are such landmarks in a writer's yeah, career, it's, it's, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a journey. It's, it's, mm. there, there's different levels. And, um, you know, the first record deal that I, that I got was joining a group called Manchild right out of high school. I graduated high school in 76 um, and got asked to join that group that right when I graduated. It was perfect because all my friends were going to college and I just woke up, wait a minute, I ain't planning for, for anything. Right. And they were going to uh, school for music and and I just and I had just been in, in a in high school I was in a band called Tarnished Silver that we we played at all the everything at high school. Yeah. You know? Uh, colleges and everything, and that was our that was our lives. We were we were just and we we played original songs too, um, and had fans of the school. But we were like also, we all cop- copied the hell out of Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> In fact, one time um, there was a guy from Boston that called us and said, "Hey, I just saw this group that stole all your stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you just right. saw Earth, Wind and Fire." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how good we were at stealing their stuff um but it was um you know the writing was a, was a big big piece of it and always a part of it and so so getting going out of high school and and joining Manchild and getting a record deal okay that's like okay i made it but there's different levels of making it for real and getting a record deal doesn't necessarily mean that you made it and I was able to put a couple songs on on that on that album as well, um, but nothing. It, it had a regional hit. wasn't my wasn't my song that kind of happened, and and so I was in the Manchild for about four or five years, and it ended up not going anywhere. And then um, then I ultimately left the group and um, and uh, started another group. That didn't go anywhere. A group called April, and then I left that group and joined another group called the Crowd Pleasers. Out of um, it's a cool name. Um, they were in Ohio. I mean, in Michigan, I joined them. They were basically a top forty band, and um, and I got there. And then I started to try to get them to maybe we should be trying to get a record deal. Let's write some songs. And was it in Detroit? It was uh, actually all over Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, Midland and Traverse City and Owasso and Lansing, um, Flint. We just were playing gigs there, which was perfect because it's like that's the best p- place where you learned how to write songs by playing Top 40. Oh, for sure. You know, um, and uh, there's no better school than that um, as long as you're paying attention. Um, it's also hard sometimes to differentiate yourself, though, when you're like competing with the other top forty projects, and you're like, "Man, I well, how do you how do you stick out?" The the interesting thing though is like, because um, when I was in Manchild, we were we were, you know, writing songs and the whole bit, and then we did a few shows with Cameo when they had started off, and and we were at the same level at one point, but then they kind of just took off because they were writing better songs and just cooler things and and we were writing cool stuff we were like you know because we were being jazzy we, we were kind of like into um 
jazz fusion stuff, and so mm-hmm. we were extra fancy, better musicians, and that didn't mean nothing. Um, and so it it took me being in the crowd pleasers and um, and playing top forty every day to kind of see what people like and what people dance to and what 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 touches people. Um, and that was that was part of learning how to write a a hit song, not just a song, but a song that other people might actually want to listen to. Huge difference. Uh, so, um, so that that's so going through the school of, with Manchild. Manchild was a funk band. I didn't have any funk skills at all. I was just an acoustic guitar player, James Taylor loving, you know, acoustic guitarist and Waterfall. My my nickname they called me Waterfall because all I did was play pretty songs. And uh, and so I learned, got my funk chops in Manchild, and then I got my top forty chops in um, in the crowd pleasers. And from the crowd pleasers, then I went and joined the group The Deal. And there that's kind of like yeah. when it started happening. So so you have all these events that happen that you think are it, but mind you, all this time there's there's no real success. Nothing is nobody's making any money. Um. I placed my when I went to meet the deal. It's my second time meeting L.A. Reid. I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, because I went there because I had written this one song that this group named Midnight Star had decided to record. It's a song called Slow Jam, and that was the first major song that I placed that actually made a difference because <clears throat> I got my first statement, not the check, but a statement. Because I was at Solar Records, and so they sent me a statement telling me this is money. This is how much money I got coming. It was like a check for five thousand dollars. I said, "Oh my God, this is what happens. You can actually make money from this." And so I was sold at that point, and I was, I was writing like crazy at that point. Um, yeah, once you hit the level of where you see, oh, if I write at this level, yeah, then I nothing. The next song has to be that. The yeah. next song has to be that. Or you right. like in your head at least you know not to just try to write a song. You're like, nah, this guy this can be better. Yeah. This can be better. So yeah. it was so that was amazing. I didn't get that check for a very long time, by the way. Um <laughs> and so Are you now, sure it showed up? Huh? <laughs> Are you it, sure it, it showed it up? It finally showed up, but it showed up way too late after my credit had gone bad after I had got an American Express card and bought me a stereo and all kind of stuff. So um, learned my lesson there, but um, but the idea that that I I could actually make a living from yeah. writing songs, and at that point I was writing I was writing songs all the time, while the rest of the band was going out and partying and everything like that. I was in my closet with my little Tascam uh, four track, writing and constantly coming up with more songs, whether it was for myself or, or, or for the group or for whatever it was like. If I heard something on the radio, then I oh, I want to write something close to that. And so when do you start writing with L.A. in that way? I mean, you said that was the second time you met him. With L.A., I met him first at this club called the Zodiac in Indianapolis where I saw the deal. And um, uh, I was very impressed with the band. It was right in the time when the time and Prince were very hot. And, and so L.A. And, and the deal, they had already, they were, they were ahead of everybody else in Indianapolis. All the rest of the bands were not that cool I mean they had leg warmers and eyeliner and everything and we were like (laughs) so it was it was some it was some weird stuff for us initially 
but then, and I was walking in there with the members only jacket, so, um, so I had no vibe whatsoever. Um, that's when I moved up to Michigan, and when I was up in Michigan, that's when I, I changed my vibe. And uh, this, there used to be this word we called it breed. Um, it's just their whole look was a, you, you, it's the new breed, and um, so there was this guy in the, the group a guy named uh, Hollywood who was talking to L.A. on the phone while we were in Michigan in the crowd places, and he tells L.A., L.A., L.A.'s on the phone, and he, I get on the phone, and uh, I said, yeah, I remember I met you down at Zodiac. He said, yeah. And I said, what are you guys doing? He said, we're, we're working with the Midnight Star, and they're doing some demos, and we got some songs we've written. And I said, let me play you something. So he played me something over the phone, this song called Turn It Up. And it's bass lick on it and it was just all in that whole time Prince thing it was so bad it was like I was killing me I was like oh and I'm stuck up here with these guys that are 65 years old and older and and I was like I just felt like ah this is terrible so I asked Hollywood I said ask LA if they need another guitar player or something I I would love to try to join the band and um, he said okay I'll check with it because Hollywood was trying to get in the group too and so um Few days went by. Hollywood never said anything to me. I said, "Hollywood, so did what did L.A. say?" He said, "Ah, oh. uh, he said he, he likes you and everything." He said, "But you you're just not breed enough. You ain't got enough breed." And I was thinking, "Yeah, but he ain't seen me." Because he was a member in the members only jacket. So, coincidentally, when I went down to go see Midnight Star, as he said, they were working with um, Midnight Star was doing demos on them. And I went down to help Midnight Star record this song, Slow Jam, to demo it. And so I went in the studio and sang the song. L.A. had walked in while I was singing. He didn't know it was me behind the mic. And then uh, they told him it was me. Then I came out, and I had my new breed on. And so he's like, all right, you got a vibe. And then one of the guys, a guy named Jeff Cooper in Midnight Star, asked if I would stay and uh, help them finish doing demos as they were preparing for, for Midnight Star because Midnight Star was pretty busy and they couldn't do it as much. And I was really good on the four track in doing background vocals and doing demos. I, was, I had mastered it. My backgrounds were better than everybody's. So they said, we need you to kind of come down. Can you come down and help out? So I left the... Uh, I took some time off from the crowd, please, for about, about a month and uh, stayed down there to help them get these demos done. And uh, in that process, I was able to write a couple songs as well, place a couple songs. And so the deal, they all went and took their pictures and everything. And I was not in the group. I was hanging out and watching. And um, they sent it off, and I, I had to go back with the crowd pleasers. So I'm up in Midland, Michigan. Um, Is Rock Steady in that group of songs? Not that group, not yet. Okay. And so I'm in Midland, Michigan, and then I get back there and then I get a call from LA telling me guess what I said what's up he said the deal we got a record deal I said well, great for y'all I was like because I wasn't in the group and he said one other thing I said what's that the guys voted and they want you to be a part of the group too so my life was saved hell yeah 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, but yeah, the songs like Rock Stadium, so they came much later. Yeah. You know. When does the deal break up? Because that seems to be sort of like when you start really kind of getting into your solo stuff and when you get into writing for other people. Kind of a long story, but while when, while I was in the deal, when I joined the deal, I joined the deal as a guitarist, background singer, and a writer. Um, I wasn't supposed to necessarily be the lead singer. Now, mind you, during that time, I, had a, I was writing songs all the time. And so I was also submitting songs through through Reggie Calloway to Dick Griffey, trying to get songs placed on the Whispers or whoever. And so I would do these demos all the time. So Dick Griffey, the president of Solar Records, would hear these demos. There was one song in particular called Sweet November um, that Dick had heard, and I submitted it for Midnight Star, for um, The Whispers. And he said, why doesn't the deal do this? The deal should do this song. And L.A. said, well, we don't really have anybody that can sing it. And he said, what are you talking about you don't have anybody that can sing it? You got Kenny Edmonds. He can, he can sing it. He said, ah, oh, but he's not one of the lead singers, and he can't, he can't sing lead. And he said, what kind of sense does that make? That doesn't, he said, well, we voted in the group, and when Kenny was in the group, that's, he didn't come in as a singer. And I wasn't pushing it. Um, so Dick said, well, you need to fix that, and they need to go, he needs to sing it. So L.A. went and had a meeting with the group without me there to see if I could sing. They said no. <laughs> so, um... I was voted to not sing again. Um, he talked back to Dick Griffey. And by, this is our second album at this point. And at this point why, why were they so against you singing? Just because I wasn't the lead singer. Because yeah. they were. Yeah. And uh, so this is our second album that me and L.A. ended up producing yeah. by default. Because Midnight Star would not produce us on the second album. So... Um, Dick sends back the message, well, if y'all want to have a record deal, then Kenny Evans needs to sing that song. If you don't want to have a record deal, then all right, then that's it. So I got to sing the song. <laughs> Good um, for him, too. And um, so, so that's kind of like a little bit of the history of kind of like what the group is like in terms of my position. I was, I was kind of more the background guy and I wasn't trying to be the lead guy and then then 
Dick Griffey decided, you should have a solo record. It's cool that you with the deal, but since they don't want you to sing, you need to sing more. So now you can have a solo record. So, yeah. so he he created so created so that I could do this first solo album that I did. In the process, I had a little song called "I Love You, Babe," and um, and the deal we were going out on tour, and so I had a little bit of "I Love You, Babe" to do, and um, but we had finally come up with this one song called Two Occasions." That was like the deal breakout hit for us. And we were out on tour. And at this point, L.A. and I were growing as producers and writers. And we were starting to get calls. And it was, excuse me, and it was just like, we were so happy about it and, and so excited because we felt like we was Jimmy and Terry. And because uh, we got to get on planes from, yeah, sit, exactly. we, we was traveling. <clears throat> and the band didn't particularly like it because we'd leave dates and they call us jet setters and so it was it was getting it wasn't so great and the reality is that we weren't really making that much money out there and the money that we were making from our production we kind of kept putting our money in so the group could be out equipment wise and everything we were taking care of everything and not really making anything so we were just kind of just working for the band to be out so there was a one last couple last shows that we were supposed to do. I made the mistake. I went to visit a friend somewhere, got on the plane, and I, I landed in the wrong city where the <laughs> show was. I was supposed to go to... Can't do that anymore. New Roads. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, I was supposed to go to Rhode Island, but I ended up in Atlantic City. Yeah. And when I landed there, I said, oh, I'm in the wrong place. I called... And the show was going on. I missed performing. Yeah. And at that point, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to quit. So when I got to the gig and L.A. met me, L.A. said, let's quit. Oh, yeah, he was so waiting for He me. was ready. Yeah. We, we were already kind of on the page because we I was going to get a bunch of stuff for, being, for not being there. Although they didn't give me too much stuff about it. But, um, but we decided at that point that we wanted to just kind of concentrate on becoming, you know, producers and um, and doing that. How we, soon after that did, you know, I'm Your Baby Tonight for Whitney come out? I mean, is that like... No, that was a little, that's still a little time. Um, and, and that's the thing is that um, all of this took a lot of time. It was, you know, from 87, it was probably from 80, we, we moved out to L.A. in 85. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Probably in '87 is when we did Rocksteady. So it was about two years in between there before of, of writing music, going to knocking on doors, uh, going to Warner Brothers, going to Motown, trying to get people to take our music. They would not take it. Um, Even after Rocksteady, I mean, well, that was before Rocksteady, but right. Rocksteady yeah, yeah. was in was in that. Some of those songs sure. we played it. Um, there were some songs that ultimately ended up being placed that people passed on sure and uh and that's just the way that it was so you spent more time being rejected than you were being yeah. accepted it's still know? like that on some level of course sure. um so by the time you know the list of songs that you have that start coming out probably towards the end of that you know if you go 85 to 90 of like developing then it's just like 
you know, doors are open and 1990 comes in and it's just like, it's an endless list of huge records. I mean, Whitney Houston cuts a record of yours at that time. You had to be like already cashing that check also, (laughs) right? I mean, yeah, yeah, so when the Whitney record came, we. Whitney came to us. We we actually met with Clive Davis to try to work with Whitney earlier, and he wouldn't give her. He he offered us Jennifer Holiday first, and um, we were like, "Nah, we wait." Um, and so we had to wait it out. We only got Whitney because Whitney got in trouble, because Whitney was she needed to be a little blacker, because she was starting to get a backlash of just being too pop. So Clive wanted to do a more R and B record. So we were we got in that way yeah uh, otherwise we wouldn't have gotten in that door and funny enough i'm your baby tonight was not that r&b um but it was enough it's to, a pretty crazy melody i mean it's, it's super melodic yeah it's, it's beautiful that it comes in in the cor- with the chorus kind of yeah you know, so like, it's it's just not your typical r&b record yeah at all um did you do you guys just write i mean up into this do you write from do you still write from guitar and just being in the room or piano or that you was, guys that was starting from, from a beat kind of I, I start, that was from um keyboard yeah i was just at, uh, at just singing and creating the track yeah um then boys to men it's just yeah. kind of this like another just vehicle for smashes when end of the road comes mm-hmm. out there's a difference between sort of reinvigorating a famous artist like Whitney there's another thing in being part of like the beginning I know it's you know it's, it wasn't Boy Cement's first single but like yeah. you know to be part of that first batch and to sort of set the tone for uh, somebody who's doing that that's got it that feels like that's a a, a different level of achieving well, that like, was songwriting. A, that was a surprise because like Boys to Men they were they they were huge with the whole Motown Philly thing. Right. And and they had a little more R&B kind of thing. I think it's my first CD. One yeah. of the like, top, <laughs> first like 3 or 4 CDs, you know. So <laughs> so doing the end of the road coming kind of giving that whole Philly sound. Um it was an idea based off of the the movie. Um but it was nothing that we saw coming in terms of the success of it. No one could have predicted it, and um, and it, it became a staple for them. And um, and and it was a song that we recorded in very little time. Went up to Philly and probably did it in four hours. And it was the magic was just it was it was so easy. Do you know that it's? a smash when you're recording it after like do you have a feeling I mean I know we have feelings sometimes we're wrong about it but like when when you're done in four hours of a song like that you're you don't know you know you, uh, for, what, what cost of my personality I don't know yeah I, I don't I don't ever say this is it this is gonna be a smash I, I, I just don't do that I, I, I hope it feels good I hope it does good but of course I just it's just not part of me so I'm, I can't ever tell you I can't tell you one record that I'd done and say, I knew it was going to be a smash. Right, of course. And then, you know, I'm just going to kind of zoom through some of this because it's hard to keep up with it. Um, but, you know, Bodyguard comes out as a soundtrack, and, I mean, the soundtracks go, that's just 
revolutionary. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, it's like 40 million worldwide, yeah. some 80 million, I don't know. A lot of millions worldwide. And then, you know, it's the next really most important iconic thing for you and from looking at it is when you have When Can I See You as your own song, yeah. soul producer, soul writer, and it's like, that's so hard to achieve. There are very few artists who've done that at all. But how do you even go back to writing with other people? How did, What does that do to your life when all of a sudden you're is that is that the end validation for a songwriter producer to be like, I did all of the crafting of this song or is it just, that's just that song. That's just that song. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's never been about me. It's always been about the songs. So the best home for the song is it's, that's what it's always about. So some, certain people would lose songs because of that. I would lose songs because of that. I might love a song, but I know that I can't do the justice, do justice like someone else could do. So I lose the song because of that. Um, Vanessa Williams lost girlfriend because of that. Pebbles got girlfriend because she wasn't girlfriend, and and I was good for snatching a song back. Who told you you were good for Like, did you know when you had that song? Because, I mean, we can name a hundred artists that would have killed for that record. Were you saying, no, I need to release this one? Or was it somebody else who was like, yo, bro, you got to sing this. It's like, you're the right, I, I wrote you're the right that, voice for this. Well, I, I wrote it for myself and I wanted, oh, to, okay, good. And, and I wanted to do an acoustic thing because I, I, yeah. I hadn't had a chance because that's what I grew up doing playing acoustic guitar so I, yeah. I wanted to be able Waterfall. to introduce that yeah exactly yeah. he's back <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah I mean and then you even get into some interesting things as far as like you know when does LaFace actually start it started in uh 89 89 yeah so how much of your time is being delegated to sort of running a, a record label. Well, fortunately, L.A. was really kind of the guy that was running it on day-to-day, and I was more music-oriented, so I was kind of like, um, I'd go to certain meetings and stuff, but for the most part, I was really just kind of like helping build the music, so, you know, so in terms of doing the Boomerang soundtrack and <clears throat> and writing music for the artists that we had. The the conflict that came sometimes was the fact that I that I wanted, to, I didn't want to just do it for LaFace. I still wanted to write mm-hmm. music for everybody. And Arista and LaFace kind of had trouble with that sometimes because right. I I didn't feel like I I feel like it was going to kill me if I didn't write for other people. Yeah, it puts you in a box for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um do you still talk to Clive and Yeah, I just did a uh album project with Clive, the Johnny Mathis album. That's awesome. Um, I read his book, so he gives you guys some pretty solid shout outs. Oh yeah. He was he was nice. Um he was. Um Change the World for Eric Clapton wins mm-hmm. Record of the Year. That seems sort of like out of like the normal, you know, wheelhouse of songs. How did that happen? Um, Kathy Nelson from uh um MCA had called and said she had this she was working for Disney and had this project for um this film called Phenomenon and um, she wanted to do this song that Winona Judd 
had, had recorded at one point. And they sent me this demo of Change the World. And it was so Beatlesque. And they said that they wanted, um, and she wanted Eric Clapton to do it. Um, and I couldn't imagine it initially at first, but then um, see, Eric Clapton had agreed to do it. He would, he would only do it if I produced it. Um, so she got me on the phone with him. And we talked about it, and then I, after talking about it, I said, well, let me figure this out. Let me figure out how to make this work. And um, and that kind of kind of what happened. I took the song and then kind of re- rearranged it and turned it into an Eric Clapton song. And it worked out. Mm. Um, you end up winning Producer of the Year for the Grammys from 96 to 98, which it's hard to imagine. There are very few people who have won it once or twice. I mean, I know you're close to the Foster, you know, and... You know, there, we can name a few, but there aren't a lot of people who win it once, twice, three times in a row, and that's after being nominated. I think three or four times before yeah. that, um, you start winning by, you know, once you become an individual producer. I know the nominee nominations yeah. before that were with LA. Yeah. Do you think that there's some artistic value in being like doing music alone? Like, is there anything in that, like, introspection that makes y- makes you a unique producer? Like, what? why is it that, what was, made you as an I, individual producer so successful? I, I think it was just timing, to uh-huh. be honest. I think that it could just easily could have been me in L.A. as well. Yeah. Um, th- opportunities that were, that were there that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. Um, there were um, roads that, that, because of because of when can I see you? That's why I worked with Eric Clapton because he heard when can I see you. Man. That's why I worked with Madonna because of when can I see you. So making that decision to go t- with that acoustic guitar made the difference in terms. Of, so every little thing that you do makes a difference in terms of who looks at you and who decides to work with you. Yeah, and um, and so yeah, that. The future may have been different, say, that had I done it with L.A. and we were kind of doing a completely different kind of music, I don't know that I would have got that look. Sure. And mind you, had I also made the choice that I'm only producing LaFace and Airstar Artists, then I would have never worked with Madonna. I never would have worked with Eric Clapton. Um, and, the, and there would have been a lot of things that wouldn't have happened. I probably sure. wouldn't have done the Waiting Excel project then. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's all those things that... You know the work that you do obviously is your um, that, that's that's your resume that's your, that's your card your calling card. Yeah, I I mean I I pulled up We Belong Together, I think in a session maybe like maybe two weeks ago. Uh-huh. You know it's still for the Mariah Carey record. It's so relevant as a song, kind of now because it's very simplistic in how it's produced. Yeah, simple things. Yeah. You know, and it just highlights her vocals so much. Uh, I imagine that that's like another one of those calling cards because, you know, you work with an Ariana Grande later or some of these big voices. Yeah, no question. Working with any any of these artists. So over the the years, at at some point, it it does come back to you in in the work that you do. Um, There are young artists that know nothing of you, though. Yeah. And so whatever you've done in the past and 
<clears throat> and if you can mention that you worked with a certain artist, then yeah, then it gives you some brownie points. But other than that, right? Well, I mean, you have Bieber and Beyonce and whatever. Your list is so incredibly uh, unmatched. Uh, I imagine that there are a lot of people who would jump in. Um, but that said, because I know we're running out of time, I'm gonna list five people, and I just want you to say what first comes off the top of your head. Okay. Okay. Uh, Whitney Houston. Um, it's amazing to work with her in the studio. It was amazing to first that first vocal that we did with "I'm Your Baby Tonight." We were down in Atlanta. It was a little unbelievable that she was actually in the studio and she was actually and she could sing like that. Um, one of my favorite singers of all time, and uh, and we used to have such a good time and 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 having fun in the studio and laughing and it was. Um, you know she's missed for sure. Yeah, boys to men. Probably one of the easiest groups to work with in terms of for me, for songwriting and then producing. It just it's just it's just easy. It's just like they know what to do and everybody kind of knows their parts and we just go for it. Pink. Pink. When she first came to uh, LaFace, she was in a group called Choice, and knew immediately that she was a star. And that she, there's no way that she, she could just be in that group, um, and that she was going to be something amazing, and I wasn't wrong. Clive Davis. There's only there aren't any more Clive Davises. There's only a few executives um, over the years that are real talent-driven and uh, talented executives, and there's only there's only been a few. They almost, they're almost non-existent now. Um, and Clive was one of those. Ones. Why are they non-existent? Um, just don't make them like they used to. Yeah. It's hard for people to develop artists now, too, in a lot of ways. So. They, don't, they don't know. Yeah. They just don't know. L.A. Reid. Same thing. Um, one of my best friends um, over all these years... Very proud of who he has become and what he's do- what he's done with his career. He is one of those uh, executives as well that I mentioned that they they just don't make anymore. Um, you have to understand artists and un- understand understand songs, and that's both both Clive and L.A. understand that very well, and they've proven it time after time. And that's the key, you know. With L.A., he was able to prove it so many different places and that's not that's not easy to do uh, where you can go from one place to another and keep on having the same success no doubt um i wanted to give you a chance to talk about your philanthropy stuff the things that you've been involved in for yeah i don't really i don't really push myself on that i'm I'm always supportive of you know of of the um barbara davis's her, her diabetes um um, program that she's had for years and, and she's always been behind it and, and those are the heroes, people that really kind of like, they make that their living and they, um, they have foundations I'm one of the guys, I'm one of those guys that you can call for your foundation that will be willing to help um, so I don't try to put my name behind it and say this is what I do I'm just there to help when I can help good man 
Um, what's a message you'd give to up-and-coming writers or even you know successful writers having been through this for as long as you have? Everything ultimately comes down to a great song. No matter what and no matter who you are, where you come from, there's a friend of mine that would always kind of, every now and then he'd get in financial trouble or something like that. And I always say to write your way out of it. Um, a great song is a great song, no matter who it or where it comes from. Listen to other people's music and listen to what what makes what makes a song great and what makes it feel great and and then start working on trying to write that great song. Um, do, you, do you have any sort of formula when you think of writing a great song? Obviously, it's the obvious things: melody and groove, and are and what are what you're talking about. Yeah. Who who's who's talking? Who's singing it? All those things are are part of it. One song isn't going to be a hit on another artist. So, um, but initially, a song can be great without having any artist attached to it. If it's acoustic guitar and just a a simple song, simple melody, and in the right words, and something that makes you stop and think, um, that is something that we all um, strive for, and we're always trying to write that better song. To this day, Stevie Wonder is still trying to. <laughs> write the better song. Yeah. So it's 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 part of your DNA is something that you always do. Yeah. Well, I know for for me it was it was when my my parents could find a song of mine in a karaoke book. That's when they they <laughs> finally thought I was like they realized that I was a successful songwriter. Yes. And if that's the marker of what is a successful songwriter, uh, my friends and I still, whenever we go into karaoke, there's like a rush to put in me and one of my best friends to sing End of the Road. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, I, I your name comes up at the end of of every one of, you know, every time you perform that song at a karaoke, right. uh-huh. at the end it has you listed as a writer. And and it's... it's uh, it's so hard to write a song that is a hit. It's really hard to write a song that you can just name the title and everyone can sing along to it. Or you just see yeah. a crowd of people singing along to it and you you don't even have to prep them. You don't even need the lyrics. Nobody's looking at those lyrics yeah, yeah. anymore, you know? But you have so many of these hits that really influence so many people, so... Thank you for leading the way. We appreciate oh, you. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On the next episode, we sit down with Lindy Robbins. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.